And anyway, we're, we're excited to see the ways that God works. And uh, we're excited more and more to put our trust in Jesus. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Trusting in Jesus. We've started off this year by re-evaluating the foundation of our lives as Christians. And as a constant reminder of what that foundation is, Tracy has gone out to the local quarry. He's chiseled out for us a massive cornerstone to remind us that Jesus must be that foundation. Uh, it's right here for us, and we're going to continue to build on it as we go throughout this year. Jesus, of course, He's our friend. He's our mentor. He's a teacher for us. He's our precious Savior, but more than anything else, He is our Lord. If you're a disciple of Jesus, this must be true in your life. Very simply put, Jesus is your Lord. It's a reality. It's who you are because of what He's done. It's exciting. In summary, Jesus, he, he left heaven. He lived a perfect life. He died for our sins on the cross. He was raised again from the dead. That's amazing. Proving that he was who he said he was and that he has the ultimate authority to direct our lives. This summary alone should inspire us to trust Jesus. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, trusting in him. Shortly after raising from the dead... Uh, Jesus made a concerted effort to give his disciples some direction for what they should do now that he, Jesus, would soon no longer be around in person. And so, at the end of the book of Matthew, we get Jesus' famous, uh, famous Great Commission. Some instruction that would guide the disciples then and still guides us today. And we understand, because of these words in Matthew 28... That it's our duty to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them not just what Jesus said, but to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. But before this Great Commission is issued, there's a couple of interesting verses that I think are valuable for us to focus on. So just flip two verses forward, right? In verse 16 and 17, it says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. You know, so as I've reflected on this passage over the years, I've wondered, uh, why did some of the apostles doubt Jesus? And what were those doubts? They had just walked with him for three years and they'd seen amazing things like what Tracy mentioned earlier. Hey, man, this dude walked on water, but yet there's some doubts that exist. Maybe some of them had the feeling that Jesus being raised from the dead was too good to be true. Hey, this, had, this has never happened before. Why would it happen now? This defies the laws of, of physics and gravity and everything else. You know, maybe some of them were feeling a lingering a degree of shame because they had forsaken Jesus when he needed them the most. He suffered on the cross and they all deserted him. Maybe that shame led to some amount of doubt whether or not Jesus would even accept them as his true disciples. Whatever they were feeling, they had doubts. That doesn't mean that they didn't believe in Jesus. It does, however, communicate that there was some sense of uncertainty and hesitation. 
in this short verse, I believe that many of us can sympathize with the apostles and we can relate closely to what they were thinking and what they were feeling. They worshipped him, but some doubted. Like the apostles, we decide to worship Jesus because of who he is and what he's done. And as he stands before us, we cannot deny that he is worthy of our worship and he is worthy of our praise. However, that does not mean that all of our questions are answered. It doesn't mean that all of our uneasiness disappears. Our tenacious and unrelenting humanness vigorously hangs on to doubt. Our sinful nature tells us that we must be in control of every part of our lives. And to relinquish any amount of control is not only dangerous, but it's foolish as well. And therefore, the only logical thing to do is withhold some amount of devotion to limit our passion and to make firm boundaries around our most sacred thoughts. So what do we do with these doubts that are sure to exist? You know, to me, having doubts isn't really that big of an issue. You know, if you have doubts about God or Jesus or the Bible or even the church, I think that God designed you to think in those ways. Hear me out. I believe that God designed you, each of us, to think critically. He's given us the ability to think logically, to examine the facts that are before us, and to determine what is true and what is not. And if we just blindly accepted everything around us as truth, we'd unnecessarily put ourselves in all sorts of danger all of the time. Can you imagine uh, watching cable television? maybe later than you should, and, and seeing infomercials without questioning any of the claims that are being made. Chia Pets, the Bowflex, the Snuggie, Shake Weights, Sham Wow, OxyClean, and the list goes on and on. Millions of dollars have been wasted because people have lacked the ability to use the parts of their brain that ask the simple question, huh, should I trust these claims that are being made? And maybe the other part of your brain that says, do I really need a blanket with armholes? I don't know. Hey, maybe you do. We live in an amazing time of invention and innovation. You know, I, I believe that if we have doubts about Jesus, or we have unanswered spiritual questions, then it becomes our responsibility to explore those doubts and to search God's Word for clarity and direction in our lives. It's good that you have questions. It's good that you ask those questions and say, I wonder what this is all about. This doesn't make sense at first glance, but I am going to commit to going deeper than what my first thought might be. Now, hey, it's, it's easy to say, but it's hard to practice in the real world. It's far more natural to respond to your doubts with one of two things. Fearfulness, you know, it's, and it's a lot easier to ignore doubts altogether and choose just to do nothing. Uh, than to wade into the waters of deeper biblical study to search out 
an answer that makes sense. We respond to these doubts with two main things, to fear, uh, with, with, with fear and with indifference. And when we respond to our doubts with fear or indifference, we simultaneously guarantee that we will not grow in our knowledge of the truth or in our reliance on God. I want to break those things down for you a little bit this morning. Fear and indifference. Now, when we respond to our doubts with fear, we're really saying that we would prefer to not know the truth. Okay? When we respond to our doubts with fear, we're saying that we would prefer to not know the truth. Okay, can't that be the case sometimes? Sometimes we avoid looking for answers because we're afraid of what we might find if we did a little bit of digging. Deep down, you know that there are some things in your life that you would like to change. In fact, you're sure of it. But you're afraid that if you start digging into the Word, or you start sharing what's really going on in your life with other brothers and sisters, and you start airing out the real you, that you're going to find some things that you don't like. Some areas where you know that you've resisted God's influence. Areas of your life where you know you're separating that little part out from your Christian walk. Ah, This part of my life can go untouched. You're fearful that your suspicions about what God might say about that area are true. And you're afraid that if you admit that reality, that your convictions to do the right thing just might force you to change your life. Let's go to John 14 together. I want to show you what what Jesus says about responding to our doubts with fear. John 14, we're in verse 23. I'll start reading as you turn there. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Hey, this sounds a lot like our Bible class this morning, doesn't it? Where God's intention all along was to want to be with us and walk with us and and carry that relationship side by side along with us. Hey, my Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. That God just has always wanted to be with us like that. Verse 24, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Yikes. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I am. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. What Jesus is teaching here is that obedience ought to be synonymous with trust. We obey because we trust, and we trust when we obey. It's almost like you could write a song about it, you know, when we... When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His goodwill, He abides with us still with all who will trust and obey. Hey, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust 
and obey. That's it. That's a good song. So let's, let's just think for a moment about this verse that we've just read. Jesus says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Whoa, 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 wait, wait a second. Are you telling me that I don't love God? No. No, I'm not. But your idea of biblically defined love may be lacking if it allows you to live in any way that you want without submitting to the commands and the will of God. Jesus himself makes sure to say, oh, oh, oh these, aren't, hey, these aren't my words. These words that you hear, they're not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. I want you to understand, hey, there's no other way than to trust and obey, to be happy in Jesus. That's me. And it's here that Jesus foreshadows what is to come. Right? He doesn't say, okay, now you're just going to have to figure this out all out on your own. He says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Jesus is saying, trust me. You don't, you don't understand right now, but you're going to be taught by the advocate. And I'm going to give you everything that you need with the Holy Spirit. You're going to have the opportunity to have peace in your life. But here's the key. Verse 27. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Why would he say that? Because he knows so often our first response to our doubts is to be afraid of what might come next. Ask yourself, what are you afraid of this morning? How has that fear robbed you of the peace that God wants to give you? You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before what happens, so that when it does, you will believe. He says, man, I'm laying out this plan for you so that you will believe me. I want to tell you what's going to happen before it happens to increase my credibility in your eyes so that you'll just trust me. Look, this is going to happen. And then it did happen, of course, just like he said that it would. We know that fear should not direct the life of a disciple. Ultimately, responding to our doubts with fear does not show God that we trust him. God instead desires that we would dig into his word with the expectation that we will find the very best solutions to our questions and to our problems. God has given it to us, and sometimes we walk around as if we have no direction, no idea what to do, when in fact so many of the principles that would lead you to a solution that would be pleasing to God and satisfying personally are sitting right there just waiting to be dug into, and we say, man, I really wish I could get some direction in this. You know, and we all, of course, know that the best solutions are not the easiest solutions. In fact, they're never the easiest solutions. But since we've become disciples of Jesus, we've already agreed that our comfort and our convenience do not ultimately determine our actions. As disciples, we've decided to live differently. We don't do things because they're convenient. We do them because they're right and they're pleasing to God. Maybe we used to live in a way that was determined by ease and convenience, but no more. Like Paul the Apostle says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old has gone. 
the new is here. It's a decision. I will not be dictated by fear anymore. Okay, so early in the, earlier in the sermon, I said that when we respond to doubts with fear or indifference, we simultaneously guarantee that we will not grow in our knowledge of the truth or in our reliance on God. Uh, we've taken a look at fear, and I, I want to explore the other common response, which is indifference. When we have doubts about Jesus or God, a lot of us can default to this apathetic feeling of indifference. Uh, a response of indifference says, this is not an, impo- uh, an important enough issue for me to spend my time or my energy on. It says, I do not trust that the resources that I put into this endeavor will ultimately be worth it. I've got questions and concerns, I've got doubts, but I'm content with letting them fester and stagnate until they are a future source of discouragement and a firm foothold for Satan to enjoy and employ. Of course, this is not pleasing to God either. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through 14. I want to show you, what what does God think about this? What does God think about us being indifferent? In Hebrews 5, verse 11, uh, we get some instruction from the Hebrew writer. Look at what he says in verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. And you're not even trying anymore. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. You know, this passage comes as part of an explanation that Jesus was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Right? And as a Hebrew writer is explaining this, uh, he's maybe anticipating that you know, his, his listeners are not really fully grasping what he's saying. Uh, the, the plan was that Jesus was not only to be a perfect sacrifice for all people, but that he had learned obedience from what he had suffered, and once he had been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for anybody that would obey him. Now, uh, the Hebrew readers, like, as he's going through this, he's like, they're not, they're not going to get this. <laughs> they're not going to get this. Uh, and so, so we, we see him, hey, we have, we got, we have a, lot of say, well, a lot to say about this. But it's hard to make it clear because you don't, you're not trying to understand anymore. When something gets a little bit confusing to you, do you just give up and su- uh, just succumb to the alluring pull of indifference? Indifference is easy. But it's the very benchmark of someone who is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Maturity is defined by the Hebrew writer here as constant use of the word of God. Someone who trains themselves to clearly be able to distinguish what is good and what is evil. And that process is a process of trusting Jesus. It says, Jesus, I don't know what the answer is right now, but I trust that you have it. And so I am, by constant use of the word, going to train myself until I understand. 
How do you respond to your doubts? Do you fearfully shrink away from the commands of Jesus, resisting obedience in favor of doing things in your own ways? Or have you given up on trying to understand? Have you learned enough about God that you believe that your knowledge now can carry you along and sustain you day by day? That's, that's, that's not a day-by-day faith. That's yesterday's faith that you're trying to grab onto. You need some faith today and tomorrow to get you through today and tomorrow. We can't just bank on what we have learned in the past. Are, are you ready to change those things? We all have doubts, and that is a given. But it's up to you to respond in a righteous way. Are you ready to respond to your doubts with courage rather than fear and conviction rather than indifference. Because when you do, your life will be marked by a trust in Jesus. I want to tell you a true story. Uh, about 500 years ago, in the Netherlands, there's a man by the name of Dirk Willems. Uh, Dirk, it's a fun name. You, know, you like that? Maybe another, uh, another son, like D- Dirk Lutz. I don't, I don't think it... It doesn't flow. It doesn't flow. That's not an announcement. We're not expecting it. I'm just saying <laughs> So our friend Dirk, he's sitting in prison, and he's awaiting trial and certain execution. What was his crime? Well, he was an Anabaptist, which was a part of a group of Christians who were considered to be outlaws because of some of their beliefs and how seriously they took their Christian convictions. Uh, We actually have a lot in common with the Anabaptists uh, of about 500 years ago and their view of God and of Scripture. Uh, end of the church, and Dirk, he's a guy that we would be rooting for. We would be rooting for this guy. But in their day, they were persecuted by other Christian groups that were in control, and that's why he found himself in prison awaiting execution because his beliefs and convictions were going against what was the common thought that Christianity should be. So in Hollywood-type fashion, Dirk takes the bedsheets and the cloths that he finds in his room, he ties them all together, attaches it to his bedpost, and escapes by uh, belaying down the side of the prison wall, escaping to freedom. He was free, but he was found out. All of a sudden, people realize, hey, where's Dirk? He's gone. He's running. They see him, and a chase now ensues. So, As Dirk is running, it's wintertime, and there is a lake, and what he sees is, you know, I could could cross over this lake to the other side because it's frozen, and and, and I can escape to freedom in the woods on the other side. And so as Dirk is running across, he's a lighter man, and he makes it across. But then his pursuers, who are heavier than he is, as they cross along the ice, They sink through. And now Dirk, as he's on the other side of the shore, about to experience freedom for doing something that was right all along, he hears the cry of his pursuer from inside of the lake behind him. And he knows, I have to make a choice. I can be free and clear, easily escape. My pursuer will fall through the ice slip to the bottom of the lake, never be heard of again. I can keep on running. But then he remembered the teachings of Jesus. 
In Luke 6, he, he knows that Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Treat others the same way that you would want them to treat you. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And soon you will be sons of the Most High for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Dirk knew well the teachings of Jesus and perhaps these very lines came to his mind as he heard the screams and the cries from those who had put him in prison. And so he turned around, he walked back out onto the frozen pond, and he lifted the prison guard out of the water to safety. And as they pant for breath and lay on the ice, the other guards and the warden eventually arrive on the shore of the pond, and the warden yells to the recently rescued guard, commanding him to re-arrest Dirk and bring him to the shore. He complied. Dirk found himself back in prison, and then he was later sentenced to death. And in 1569, all of his property was confiscated, and he was burned alive, executed for his faith and his conviction. Dirk Willem showed true trust in Jesus to the very end, even when it did not make any sense in an earthly way. I think many of us are uh, familiar with the definition of faith that's found in Hebrews 11, verse 1. I want to read that for you. Uh, we know it well, probably have it memorized. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Think about that definition in light of that story of Dirk Willems. You know, I, I think too often the concept of faith is used to fill in the gaps for our lack of knowledge of who God is, what His character is like, and the promises that He has made to us. What do I mean? Here, let me, let me show you. Let's say, for instance, that you have an argument with your coworker or a friend or your spouse, and then later in the week you meet with your discipleship group and you, you bring this argument up to just share how your side of things went and maybe to get some advice on how to move forward and maybe reconcile some things. And let's say that your brothers and your sisters in that discipleship group, they start to use the Bible to give you great advice. And they say, you know, you really ought to encourage, you know, I want to just encourage you to imitate Christ's humility. You know Philippians 2, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Uh, you should consider other people better than yourselves. Don't just look to your own interests. That's what you should do. And then somebody else says, yeah, you know, I'm reminded of 2 Timothy. That, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, this is kind of a... Stupid argument. It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. You know, disciples shouldn't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. They, they produce quarrels. The Lord's servant shouldn't be quarrelsome. He should be kind to everybody. He should not be resentful. And it feels like you're holding on to some resentment. Right? And you start to get this good advice from the Word of God. And then, let's say you're listening and, and you kind of respond with, Yeah, okay, yeah, I can see what you're saying. But you just don't understand my boss. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 that might work with your wife. My wife's totally different. You just don't get it. And then after some more discussion back and forth, you abruptly end the discussion with, yeah, 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 I know. I've got faith that God's going to work everything out. Which is code for, I'm not going to do anything that you just said. 
what's the problem here? It's obvious. Saying, I have faith that God will work things out without really intending to change your actions or to take into account the biblical principles that were shared with you is at its very core a faithless action that shows that you do not trust God at all. It says to God, I do not trust your ways. I've got this covered all on my own. My ways are better than yours. I am going to run into the woods and get to freedom. It's the spiritual equivalent of saying, yeah, you're in my thoughts and my prayers. Even if you have no intentions to go to God in prayer about that thing that you just said you'd pray about. And if we're not careful, the statement, you're in my thoughts and prayers, can become social currency at best and a lie to God at worst. Having faith, real trust in Jesus, means that you are confident in what you hope for. And you're certain about what you don't see. What does that mean in the real world? We're coming in for a landing here. What does that really mean in the real world? It means that when you do not know how something is going to work out, you still know that Jesus has the best answer. Even if you don't yet know what that answer is, you know that he holds the answer. It means when you're going through a trial, you know that Jesus has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you. It's just going to take a little bit of work for you to find out what his will is in that situation. It means that above everything else, you trust that Jesus will determine your steps. Now, this is truth. But knowledge of the truth does not primarily come from reading or from studying or from theorizing or from listening to a sermon. To really know the truth about whether or not trusting in Jesus really works, a disciple has to hold to the teachings of Jesus and live by his life-transforming word. Uh, We're going to end with John 8, verse 31. I want to remind you of this right here. When Jesus is talking to this group of Jews who believed in him, he said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, who are these people? Yeah, well, they're people that believed in Jesus. And yet, they are not disciples just because of that belief. They're identified as disciples if and only if they hold to the teaching of Jesus. So, hey, is it possible to believe in Jesus and not be transformed by him? (laughs) Absolutely. Is it possible to believe in Jesus and not be set free? You better believe it. The difference is that a true disciple of Jesus will trust him. And And in the context of that trusting relationship, they will discover the truth, and then real freedom will be found. This morning, I want to encourage you to trust in Jesus. Let's choose to respond to our doubts with courage and conviction, not with fear and indifference. This morning, I want to encourage you to trust in Jesus. Amen.